Casey. And I'm Matt. And this is Too Much Film School. This week we're going to talk about Fight Club, the number 12 movie on IMDb's list of the top 250 movies of all time. A claim uh, that you find a little dubious, correct? Well, I mean, is Fight Club better than Casablanca, which is number 19? Is it better than Goodfellas? Is it better than Rear Window? No, it's not better than, than any number of these movies. I think um, that... Yes, those are great films, and they might even rank better than Fight Club, but if you're going to ask the internet movie <laughs> database what the best movie is, you are talking to a specific set of people that are using the internet. I don't know that everyone that saw Rear Window in the theaters and loved it <laughs> is online voting for the best 250 movies of the internet. So, you know, there, how many of these people voting for Fight Club have seen Rear Window or Casablanca? Okay, but then how does how does Fight Club beat The Matrix by eight eight spots? Um, that's a good <laughs> I, the Matrix I liked, but I might like Fight Club a little more than The Matrix. Really? Um, the Matrix changed how action movies were made for the last fifteen years. Fight Club was a cool movie with Fight a good Club twist. Fight Club changed but... the way that movies that the person is the same person <laughs> for the past fifteen years. The yes. Explosion in that market. It has sort of become the. Uh, Along with with the Sixth Sense and like Usual Suspects, that like that little period in the late nineties where all movies have to have twists and we have to right and Fight Club's twist of they're the same person has become its own cliche. Not just of having a twist in a Shyamalan way where he's going to alter the twist each movie. Like this, the just the number of movies that uh, come about. Uh, you know, it was parodied like in Adaptation, where they're making fun of terrible screenwriters. His his twin brother character in it is a complete moron. Comes up with a movie where it's a cop chasing a serial killer who's taken a woman, and all three of them are actually the same person. It's called The Three. And I believe they took that script from the movie and made it into Identity with John Cusack. <laughs> Except there were 12 of them or whatever in a hotel right, room. Right. It, it's just laughable, the cliche at this point. And yet... Uh, I jokingly re referred to that as a good point for Fight Club. So, back to your, your justification why it should be lower. Well, the difference between Fight Club and those twists, uh, going to Fight Club being a good movie, e even if it's not the 12th best movie of all time, uh, that the twist that Tyler and the narrator are the same person... Spoiler alert. <laughs> ...tells us something about the narrator. Like, in a lot of movies, you have two main characters, and they're really sort of like two sides of the same yeah, person. Like... Kirk and Spock or, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, in this case, they're emphasizing that by saying they're literally the same person, which is, you know, it's, it's a fun twist, but it also tells you something thematically, and I think that's much more valid than, ooh, he was dead the whole time. <laughs> so you really like Fight Club and think it should be higher on the list? <laughs> so it should be higher than The Sixth Sense, which I... Ah, oh, damn it, it's not. I thought The Sixth Sense was Which it is. It's sad that this list is so dominated by movies in the last, like... When he, you know, like they shoot up to the top so quickly, like Dark Knight. Pulp Fiction, um, you know, things that, again, I think hit the internet user's sweet spot of, oh, I was 14 when I saw that, and it's right. great, versus, oh, yeah, I maybe saw that when I was 30 because I heard Citizen Kane was good. Right. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was interesting probably for the 40s, but... It didn't have a big twist. Actually, wait, it didn't have a big twist. Uh, <laughs> he wasn't the same person as a slam. He wasn't a slam. <laughs> yeah. So I think That'd that... would be great if people were just... <laughs> we should recut. Citizen Kane wasn't slam. <laughs> and then there's like a, the Godfather. Like, if there's obligatory ones. Like, you have to tell people that the Godfather is your favorite movie. Otherwise, they don't think that you're smart. Like you said, when we... First saw Fight Club, it made a big impact on us. It was our freshman year of film school, I think. Yeah. Uh, and we were the target demographic, 18-year-old guys. Like, I came out of this movie and we were like, yeah, let's punch each other. And, like, I knew guys that, like, tried to start fight clubs and stuff. And they were kind of weird. Which, but like, Well, that's <laughs> usually the people that gravitate towards those. Uh, but I think that's funny because it's still somewhat, even with the theme being like, oh, reject corporate American ikea and all the branding and everything like that i don't think the correct answer is yeah hit each other and you'll actually feel something you know like that's also not portrayed as yes this is a flawless solution in the movie <laughs> well there's uh there's i think there's room for debate there because the during the first couple hours 
they make Fight Club seem so awesome. And it's like Truffaut said, that like there's, there's almost no way to portray something without making it glamorous. And it does seem glamorous and fun, and it does seem like a good solution. And then there's a very sudden shift when Robert Paulson is shot in the head, and he's dead, and it turns into almost a comedy that everything the uh, Project Mayhem guys are doing is a little slapsticky, a little, they're clearly dumb, and Tyler becomes a villain very suddenly. And and in the end, he rejects Tyler and, and holds Marla's hand, but that doesn't completely cancel out the fact that it was two hours of awesome fight clubness. Right, I think in the end, he's almost trying to walk the middle line between his original obsession with uh, brands and then what Tyler was espousing with uh, bringing down society and drawing strips of venison in the freeway. Uh, so I took it as when he takes her hand, yes, he's wiped out the credit record. Something's going to happen like from that. And he's going to take his guys and kind of do a middle ground of what between what Tyler was he, doing. He, he is accepting did. traditional gender roles by, by holding the woman's <laughs> hand. And like they're going to get married and have kids exactly. but while they're blowing up the buildings. See, he's going to have the best of both <laughs> worlds. Um, I don't know what the vision of the future would be, but again, with him saying he's okay and you know his eyes are open, it, it felt like the shooting of Tyler in the end, where he puts the gun to his own head, is both a psychological, you know, a physical commitment to ending his psychosis there, but also like a healing, cathartic kind of reincorporating the personality. It's not like he's just destroying it. He's saying, "I no longer need you to be the bit." The usually with split personalities, it's created out of need. To like protect, you know, if there's child abuse, create a strong character that's going to protect the young one, you know. And right. so I think he's absorbing the cool protector guy that does what he actually wants instead of what society believes he should do. Yeah, I mean, clearly he is capable of doing the things that Tyler does because he did that. He's right. able to, like when Tyler says, I, I talk the way you want to talk, I fuck the way you want to fuck, like... Edward Norton can do those things because he did them right. previously. So he's just... He no longer needs a separate person to encourage him to do those things. Um, so I think at the end, he's now whole. Like, he's cured his split personality disorder. So that's our episode this week. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and actually, I think that's how most uh, people suffering from that condition are supposed to go about that. Is putting a gun into their own mouth and trying to shoot out the other personalities <laughs> without nicking anything vital. So the problem in, in identity is that there's 12 of them and he doesn't have enough bullets. Exactly. <laughs> Well, so I think now that we've explained the ending, we should flash back yeah. to the very, very fitting with the film. I've had a discussion about the the early part of the film with about twenty people. Everyone seems to believe that the the bomb that he discusses at the beginning is not in there in the building that he and Tyler are in. When you watch the shot at the very beginning of the film, when Tyler's by the window, the camera drops down below the street. And it shows the van, and uh, Edward Norton says, there's vans full of explosives, it's going to blow up the building. If you watch the shot carefully, it's the same building. There is no d dispute about it. It's just that when you, when you see the buildings explode, it's two and a half hours later, and you can't quite remember. But if you go back and check, it's the same building. I don't know why that doesn't, exp doesn't explode. Um, um, Edward Norton disconnects the He time. does disconnect it, but Brad Pitt messes with it, and granted, Brad Pitt is a figment of his imagination. This is where the whole... Like, they're uh, two different people doing the same thing. Like, what is he doing and what is he not doing? Yeah. And, uh... It is weird that, uh, Brad Pitt kicks Edward Norton out of the van after he's disconnected it. Then he closes the van and breaks off the key. And I thought, oh, he reconnected the timer. Or why else would he break off the key? Right. But the building well, was also, not why, was, why would he plan on being in that same building if he was going to blow up that building? Like, he didn't want... He wouldn't want to kill himself and... I mean, he clearly told Project Mayhem guys to come to the building... He wouldn't want to kill himself in the entirety of Project Mayhem at the same time. Maybe he Doesn't... did want to. Maybe that was his message. He was going out with a bang. That's not really... <laughs> Resetting it for everyone, and uh, his job would be done. So he's over. Oh, nice. I see. Uh, part of the sacrifice, showing how his level of commitment. Very confusing. Right. Um, but in any case, the building doesn't explode, but whatever. The beginning of the film, that shot, and there's a few others where the camera like whips around the parking structure. Yeah, the opening credits actually are... Zooming through his brain. Yeah, start in Edward Norton's, it's like uh, neurons firing, but I think there's also, there's a black, like, 
gas that gets released. I think it's I think that's supposed to, Yeah, it's supposed to be some chemical being released in his brain. Right, and then neurons firing because of it, and then zooming out, and it gets, the scale gets bigger and bigger until we go down the gun. It was pretty groundbreaking for the time, and I remember watching that going, this is amazing. Uh, and then the zooming down to the bombs and everything. And I thought, oh, that won't hold up. There's been a lot of advances since then, and I'm sure I'm going to have much more refined right. eye towards... But in subsequent watchings, that actually still looks awesome. I think it's I well feel, done. I feel like parts of some of the stuff looks a little too clean. Like the fact that there is no other vehicle in the parking structure. There's not a lot Seriously. of dirt on the... Well, I mean, <laughs> I feel like if we did it nowadays, there would be more cars, you'd see more dirt and more detail... There's there's other shots like in his apartment where the camera is zooming around his uh, stove good, and yeah. fridge and like the floor like the stove is perfectly white. That one definitely felt like a and, weaker yeah effect and, shot. And it's not uh, a problem. It it's like but like you know you watch King Kong the 1930 King Kong we can see the, the not 1933 I think we can see the stop motion animation how jittery and jumpy it is. But if you watched it. 10 years later, you'd be like, no, that, that still kind of holds up. So 50 years from now, they'd be like, this is totally, totally clearly not a real van in a real parking garage. For as early as it was, it does use some tools to kind of mask the digital effects. It does have a, a patina kind of to the look, and the whole movie does. You talked about dirt and things, but like the Paper Street house just has so many layers on it, which David Fincher does in general, or gives direction to art department people. Right. Seven had such, just this to the nth degree, where every location they went to looked like it had 50 years of paint, newspaper pilings, and the Paper Street house was kind of quintessentially that. That look and patina and grime, they added to a few of the effect shots, like him having sex with Marla, and it covered some of the early digital nature of it, because yeah. it's yellowed and... Without that filter, it would probably just look a lot more like Polar Express or uh, Beowulf, you know, from the time where right. they had the Uncanny Valley-looking humans and they could do metal and things, but other textures were still There was still something a little weird about, in that sex scene, there's something still a little weird about their skin. I don't know if I could describe what it is, but it doesn't quite look right. <laughs> it's funny, in the commentary, Helena Bonham Carter mentions during that scene that those are not her breasts, that they made them larger digitally. <laughs> That's uh, what we do in movies <laughs> in America. So. Uh, yeah, we make things ideal. Uh, <laughs> they, they did the same thing to Keira Knightley in the Pirates posters. She's clearly not as well endowed as those posters imply. Like, on the poster, she looks like she matches Penelope Cruz, which is not, <laughs> not the case at all. Speaking of Helena Bonham Carter, I was surprised when I watched this more recently, at A, how young she was, because I think she's aged up since then or played a lot more like... Really? I feel like she parts. looks exactly the same. Okay. I'll but drop I'll... that. I'll <laughs> drop this line. On rewatching this, I actually found Helena Bottom Carter's accent kept reminding me of Rachel Weisz. <laughs> I kept going like, why does she... She sounds... And Rachel Weisz has the darker hair and kind of does a similar thing, but they both, sound when they're doing an American accent, sound the same. That's, I think they have, their their voice coach is like, we're going to find the most generic American accent we yeah. can find. They must have the same voice coach or something. It's very flat and like they say they're ours to make sure that we know they're American. Every time I watch it, her performance is actually really complicated because she, in every single scene, for the most part, she has to perform it for the first viewing where she likes Tyler Durden and she hates Edward Norton. And then she also has to play it so that when you, when you realize she knows she does not know they're two different people and sees them both as Edward Norton, she has to perform it in a way that makes logical sense for that. So she's playing two different she's playing two different scenes at the same time, and it never there's never any hole in it. Like there, it, when you rewatch it, and you know what's going on. There's never a point where you're like, ah, oh, that's that was that doesn't actually is not a realistic uh, reaction. It it is. It's just astounding that she managed to you know, make it work. And, you know, part of that's in the writing, too. They had to make all of the dialogue work, work out ways. in both ways. Whenever Edward Norton is talking about, he says, why does a weaker person latch onto a stronger person? And she says, what do you get out of it? Edward Norton thinks she means, what is he latching onto Tyler? Versus, 
what she's saying is, why are you, the stronger person, latching onto me, the weaker person? So, like, that's part of the writing, is getting that conversation to work both ways for, for each of them. Um, it's very, uh, it was a very complex trick that they did not give away at all. During the watching of it the first time, you really don't see it coming. Um, they really managed to balance that in the acting and the writing. That was impressive, and the character also helps it a lot because she's so fragmented herself and erratic that when she comes up to Edward Norton and is grabbing his crotch with her, and she has a cigarette trembling in the hand, uh, which is very humorous, iconic, with her uh, seeming, uh, she's coming on to him, and you believe that her character might do that even if he was a separate person, right? Uh, you know, from Tyler Durden. And same thing with the when he checks her breast, she's kind of. She kisses him, and she's hitting on him, like, to make something happen. And he's like, are we done? And you're like, yeah, she might bet him down. She'll sleep with anything, really. <laughs> so that helped with Which, a lot of the... Actually, on the second viewing, maybe she won't. Maybe she's dedicated to yeah. Tyler. You just don't know. A lot of the things on later viewings, you realize how it does work both ways and how she is different yeah. than you assumed the first time you saw it. Because they had to balance that, though, she's a little bit of a cipher. You realize, since you have two different interpretations of her, you realize you don't really know her character as well as you know Tyler and the narrator. By the way, I keep saying narrator because that's what he's listed in the credits. There's some debate over what his actual name is. People call him Jack just because the theme running throughout. Of right, but I mean, he that is a book that he found. Like he's, His name is clearly not Jack, but right. I mean, it's... It's a fine place to start. but He uh, says, I am Jack's this throughout. He identifies himself as it. Why you got a problem? He's he, reading the book. He can pick his own name. <laughs> the book says, he I am Jack's blank. His name is not Jack's Medulla Oblongata. <laughs> we know that's not true. He is, a, and that's another thing, actually, is the book is echoing. He's just a part, you know, he's speaking as an organ, as one of the, in the body, as one of the personalities in the body, you know, as one small part making it up. I never put that together before. I'm going to get back to Clint Carter in a second, but they do layer a lot of uh, hints throughout the film in a way that you don't notice until, like, multiple viewings. I mean, just today as we were watching it, my wife pointed out he has that yin-yang table, and I always just thought that they were just making fun of people who douchey. like, yeah, douchey assholes who like Asian culture and don't really understand it. And my wife was like, yeah, yin -yang, you know, two parts of the same whole, one's hot, one's cold, and I was like... Oh, yeah, that actually, like, the yin-yang thing actually applies to the situation. I'm going to steal that and put it in my podcast. <laughs> so well, there's there's a lot of uh, subtle hints that I, I'm impressed that they were able to, to squeeze everything in without, and once again, without tipping their hand that yeah, this is where this was going. It didn't feel ham-handed doing yeah. it. It was well-crafted. And yet you hate it and don't think it should I, be number 12 on the list. I just say, like, 14 or 15. <laughs> It's, it, it is well-crafted in the same way that all David Fincher movies are. Like, his movies are, every shot is, you know, perfect and, like, just so. Um, I, I'm astounded that they're able to make this movie. The, it's, it's basically one long montage. Like, it's his voiceover, and David Fincher had found a way to visualize what, what Edward Norton is talking about. If you really look at it, if you watch, if you put it on mute and you watch it with subtitles... And you look at the picture and you look at the text, you really get a sense of Edward Norton is not telling a story, but the pictures are telling a story, and so you, the, the voiceover feels like a story that's not actually there. They created a story with pictures, um, and it, it's not directly illustrating the voiceover. It's actually there's an interaction between the words and the pictures. It's really sort of complex. While we're talking about the voiceover, um, I, I think we should point out that Edward Norton's performance is vital to this movie working. A lot of the lines that maybe, like we had said, weren't the most profound, sound profound when he says them. But there's also a lot of dry jokes. Like he, the first time we meet his boss, the narrator says, he's full of pep, must have had his grande latte enema. I can think of a thousand different ways an actor would say that wrong and like try to like hit it as a joke. And like he must have had his grande latte enema. Huh? Huh? And like, it would be awful. But his bland, flat tone makes everything work in his narration, whether it's pseudo-profound or whether it's a, a, a play on words or a joke or whatever it is. I, I can't think of a better actor for the narration in this film. I found his performance is very good, and he does give that flat tone that 
makes the even cheesy, not, not profound ones palatable and feel meaningful. But that that line you gave an example was one of the weakest ones I felt really? in, in the movie. Was I don't like a lot of the stuff around the boss and the grande latte anima. It's like the most specific one. Or the when space exploration wraps up, it's going to be the Starbucks galaxy and the, the Pepsi Nebula. Yeah, 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 that just sounds so flat, and it's probably because of the douchey level of profoundness it's trying to hit, but uh, his delivery doesn't help in those parts. I find him best when he's being engaging, such as narrating to the camera and explaining what Tyler's doing. He actually sounds like he's delivering or emoting or being real, where some of the flat ones it sounds like he's trying to be the, oh, I'm dead inside guy. So it was a little more inconsistent for me, but overall really great whenever I could see him. I, I, I felt that it actually gave a roundness to his character that some of the voiceover was flat. And then, like you said, when we see him in person and he's narrating, he's sort of colorful, but they all felt within character. I'm sure it's there for a reason. Like when he's at work, he is bored and dead inside, and that's the whole point of the movie. So he's delivering in that way. Whereas he's, when he's talking about Tyler, he's excited because it's yeah. his cool personality. So it's on purpose, but the flat ones felt flat intentionally to me, and I could maybe see the work there. I see. I I did not feel that way. So I I and when you pointed out the Pepsi one, I was like, oh, that's also. No, I thought that was a I thought that was uh, a good line. It's also an example of the of the digital camera work. And right. Those were all CGI like cup holders and stuff. And looking at them, I was like, that's not dirty enough. <laughs> there should be some. You just think cups. everything is bathed in poop or something. <laughs> like that. Yeah, you pick up a Starbucks cup and you look for a clean one that would crumpled up and there's. No dirt on the outside. I, don't I think that. they actually, people drink them so quick that they come back <laughs> home and they're still like, it's two feet outside the Starbucks on the ground and you're like, that's very clean trash, but so disposable. So I dislike Starbucks for their corporate personhood. And so you agree with blowing up corporate art and crashing the ball oh, yeah, into the, the Starbucks? A lot of this stuff really resonated uh, with me and the 99%, especially at the time I disliked McDonald's, Starbucks, anything that was big. Um, arguably... You just don't like anything that's popular. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> but I think I've mellowed in that respect. I had McDonald's last week. And I, <laughs> stupid corporations using ammonia-cleaned meat and everything. Man, it's tasty. <laughs> so, I recognize the contradiction and the... It still doesn't deny that it tastes good. <laughs> but the rest of Edward Norton's performance is very good. And this is actually my favorite role that he's in. Uh, in some of the other podcasts, I kind of made fun of him or we talked about how he looks cheesy. In terms of saying it's a montage, the whole movie does feel like that because a lot of the shots are very quick, one second or less shots that are immense setups in terms of actually making the film. They aren't just, oh, let's grab a shot of Chicago outside or something like that. It's Edward Norton taking pictures of a flipped over car on the road. Then the next shot is him uh, in an airport terminal, and it's clearly a full-scale airport terminal. Like, a lot of the plane shots, they probably did just the same plane set over and over again, but him standing outside saying taxi with a plane flying right over his head, that's a half-second shot that they had to set up half a day on or whatever, get Edward Norton, the primary actor out there, with the primary, you know, camera crew and everyone. This is not a B-roll, you know, right. a second unit out there. It's them setting him up, timing the airplane to go over for half a second. And the entire movie is densely packed with a lot of those shots where they go, you can tell it's a setup, you know, different from where they've been filming, and it's for half a second. I wonder what the average shot length of this would be. And how Very fast. <laughs> yeah, and we were talking about the Internet Movie Database ranking that might play into the attention span <laughs> of younger people these days. It's quick-cutting MTV stuff. It, it's quick-cutting, but it's also very precise. They were not running right. out and just, like you said, they're not just grabbing shots. They set up very detailed, intricate shots for a fraction of a second, and yet it feels as a perfect unified whole, despite the fact that it's, it's super cutty and super quick. Kind of like a mosaic. Yeah. It's made up of. Little pieces, yeah. Little pieces. Um, what that word means. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, no. I think, it doesn't, is a montage just a, a combination of collage and mosaic? Or, that, I hey, I didn't go with that. I don't anyway, think that's true. Uh, I think so, probably not. Credit should go to the AD and the production manager who make the schedule, because they, they must have figured out how to shoot things that, to us while watching it, seem like crazy different places, and, and maybe they're hours apart within the film, but managed to make different locations look like the same place. 
Like, for instance, when he's taking a picture as the insurance adjuster at the car that's flipped right. over, that might be, I don't know, but for instance, it could be the car that Edward Norton and Brad Pitt crash in later on in the yeah. film. And with, you know, credit also to the cinematographer, actually there's a couple because the guy got replaced halfway through this one. Anyways, uh, credit to the cinematographers because the the scenes look completely different, right. but they, you know, they maybe they only set up one flipped over car. It could and, be an access road by the airport right, where they're something. getting, you know, and then the burned out car in the warehouse might, is, might seems be like a hangar at, yeah, the, uh, at the airport. airport. Yeah. And literally they shot these three by turning around going 200 yards that way. Right. And, and figuring out those logistics between, like I said, the production manager, the AD, the location manager has to know what we can get away with of making things look like different places but actually are within 100 yards of each other. And then the DP and the production design team and the set deck team making it all look different. Like, that's a lot of work to to shoot a film of this scale in any reasonable time and budget. Um, and then, of course, you lose $20 million by having Brad Pitt be in the movie <laughs> that could go towards the actual, like, filmmaking. Um, You're saying Brad Pitt did not help this movie? Well, Brad Pitt's an interesting cast. If you wanna, if you wanna go f- away from the filmmaking part, further away from wrapping up your Helen Bell. <laughs> we're gonna be. That's that's. We'll never get back to that. Um, <laughs> Brad Pitt is actually interesting casting because he is a you know a famously good looking guy. He's a the the quintessential movie star of the '90s, arguably. Well, see, I think. As ironic as it is to have Brad Pitt being the one that says the TV led us all to believe that we'd be movie gods and he's the movie god, uh, before this movie, he wasn't what I would consider the guy that fans of Fight Club wanted to be. Like, he right. was in Legends of the Fall was huge. He was... Which is not anything he, that he was the, a the audience for this. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Women loved him and, I mean, but... He was kind of like a Patrick Swayze or like an <laughs> early Leonardo DiCaprio to where I remember thinking like, oh, yeah, if you want to have long hair and be like a, what girls put posters up on their wall, sure. But that's he not looks like, like the cover of a romance novel. Yes. And he was in Seven before this with David Fincher, which did was a huge movie and was amazing. But he, I felt... But he's not carrying that. Right. Thing. He acted well in it. He was great, but it, I remember, like, Morgan Freeman, like, it was really ensemble. Yeah, Morgan the Freeman look. was kind of the star, and, like, it was a genre movie that yeah. people wanted to see regardless of who was in it. Brad Pitt's character was even kind of stupid in that he had to, like, <laughs> get the cliff notes for Dante's Inferno and things like that. I remember it being a little, like, steppish down. I'm like, oh, he's, he's shown as kind of a, a well-meaning good-intentioned guy, but not the brightest or the greatest. Right. So this, I think, was the first time where he really just came out swinging for both, uh, you know, 20-something guys, moviegoers, their girlfriends who love looking at his chiseled abs and everything. Like <laughs> He embodied, like, caught the entire audience with this film. Yeah. And became the movie god that he's talking about. Since then, he did, you know, Ocean's Eleven and Twelve, all the those movies where Mr. he Mr. just Smith. cemented yeah. that role and is what we know today as the icon. But at the time, when he spoke those words, it was kind of prescient and of becoming that. True. While he said it, it happened. True, yeah. I mean, even still, it's ironic that he's like, well, we're not actually going to become movie guys. Except for me. I totally <laughs> yeah, don't. <laughs> but I don't exist. I'm Edward Norton's right. imaginary friend. So, it, it, it's hard to believe, though. I mean, even with, even with all that, it's hard to believe that they did not know he is basically a movie star. Yeah. And they're giving him these lines... Like, they, the filmmakers, casting and director and everybody, had to be aware that this was ironic, that I he think was saying it. They were, just maybe not to the, the nth degree that we now know it became. That's true. Like, it, he was not a 20-year icon at the time, saying, like, it's not like we're movie stars looking in the <laughs> camera. It was somewhat well-intentioned and meaningful without it being only ironic. Yeah. Yeah, at this point, it's hard to read it as anything but irony. Right. Which does not take away from the fact that he is a good actor. I feel like he doesn't ever get as much credit as he should. Yeah, I like he... didn't mean to say that he's still just romance novel covers <laughs> chiseled abs. He he has done very impressive work. To clarify, I kept saying ironic when calling him, saying we'd be movie gods, but re- I think reflexive would be more appropriate because it does seem intentional, and there's so many other filmic references in it with him splicing the uh, frames of pornography in the films and then them pointing out the cigarette burns that they used to change over 
the he stares at the camera and the film gets loosed from the yeah. gate and the you can see the sprockets. And I remember in the theater that was amazing because you're like, is he gonna step out of the film? Like that's <laughs> what it was feeling like is that he's talking to the audience right now and he's coming through the film. They're trying to make it like a. Uh, interactive experience the way they used to have buzzers in the season <laughs> and you'd be like he's talking right to me this is actually going to happen and what's uh, sort of rows of Cairo kind of <laughs> stepping off the screen what's uh, sort of further ironic in retrospect is that David Fincher is now a proponent of uh, no film all digital you know filmmaking right so and he's got this movie that explains cigarette burdens to the general audience and shows the perforation right. even when you're watching it on blu-ray yeah exactly like, yeah. yeah and it's certainly you're not watching it in the in a theater you're watching it on your couch and you're like it's like that scene in gremlins 2 when hulk hogan comes and yells at the projectionist and you're like he wouldn't there's no projectionist here well uh, this and what i'm saying is gremlins yeah, 2 should a, be number 11 yeah <laughs> I was like, nobody 30. knows what you're talking about there uh <laughs> do I, you not remember that scene i think so when i was a kid it freaked me out because <laughs> there was gremlins in the booth right behind me that's scary and that is scary <laughs> Your Gremlins 2 reference aside. <laughs> well, Purple Rose of Cairo is a classier reference yeah. than Gremlins 2. Thank you. I will uh, give you credit. Both you went to Too Much Film School Award today. Both by Woody Allen. Now, right? <laughs> so, uh, in terms of the another reference that won't make sense to uh, future watchers of Fight Club is when they plug in the electric mag- electromagnets and wipe <laughs> VHS cassettes. Children, you know, who see this... Uh, having what are they been, doing to the DVDs? <laughs> yeah, they're like... Why would that do anything? <laughs> Honestly, at the time, I didn't even know what they were doing. Because oh. they don't actually say. They just plug something in and they wave it over the tapes. And I was like, what is that? My friend's like, that's a degosser. And I was like, why do we have a device that's only for erasing <laughs> tapes? <laughs> why is it named after a French Impressionist painter? <laughs> um, there's a guy whose name is Goss, who is the... Uh, who, who, did created something about electricity? I don't know what. They they referenced him later. He Did made they? bandages too. I think Edward Norton asked for. This is all <laughs> goals. You're the worst. <laughs> so, um, back to the back story. to the one about Carter. <laughs> Wait, what were you gonna say? I said back to the story, but I was gonna see if there was any more uh, reflexive film references. Despite the reflexivity being a little ironic or a little humorous. Or popping out of the film on purpose to try and engage you or make you think whatever highbrow crap they're trying for here. They write it in thematically too as a he said when when Edward Norton passes out in the hotel room he references back to the uh, film reels changing and says it's called a changeover. The audience the, never the knows. Film keeps going and the audience has no idea. Yeah. Uh, the Helena Bonham Carter has no idea that he switched from Tyler to the narrator right. back again. Um, yeah, no, it, it, it certainly applies to the characters. Um, and that metaphor, if they had waited five years to make this movie, that metaphor wouldn't work. <laughs> right. Um, I, there's a lot of... Uh, the the one self-reflexive moment that takes me out, for some reason, I don't know why this bothered me, this is an entirely personal thing. Uh, at the beginning of the film, they're on top of the building, Tyler Durden says, do you have any last words? And Edward Norton says, I can't think of anything to say. And then we flash back, we ca- and then we, we eventually catch up to that point, Tyler Durden says, do you have any la- anything left to say? And Edward Norton says, I still can't think of anything. And Pratt Pitt goes, flashback humor. And I'm, I don't know why that takes me out. Like, Edward Norton literally turns and talks to the camera while having a conversation with Brad Pitt, who's peeing, who is his same, like, split personality character. Oh, the next shot points at a corner of the screen. screen. It, it points at the cigarette burn. Somehow... Say, Brad Pitt saying flashback humor bugs me. I don't know why that's the line I, that crosses. Why that crosses the line for me, but it does. I found that very humorous. It's oh, it's certainly funny too. Because oh, flashback humor, and he sounds just bemused but judging as well. Even right before, I that, sort of felt the same attitude. I was judging him for trying. That. Uh, even before that, Edward Norton says, "I think this is where we came in." So it's but as a narrator, he's. Outside of the film and guiding right. you in. So, yes, to have the character on screen. And the ones where he's talking to the camera, he's still the narrator. And even the Tyler Durden that he's referencing peeing in the bisque is in a flashback. So they can break the rules of the time and space because it's, it's the narrator talking about a flashback. So he's, sh- he's showing you this was all before. It's as if they're reenacting it to catch you up. Whereas flashback humor, his flashback humor line is in real time with the character 
performing his actions in time and space. So maybe that's why you had a bike problem. Maybe that is it's, 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 it's definitely splitting hairs. But somehow the that. other ones were outside <laughs> the continuity. Yeah. This one is violating the core storyline and time continuum. Thank you for justifying my hair splitting. You're complaint. still wrong. I, I'm giving a reason why you feel that way, but it's still incorrect, and that line is perfect. Going back to Helena Bottom Carter. Oh, now yes. you're going back. Yes. We're going to get back to that. Catch okay. up with that. Very timely. Her character is a little thinly drawn. Uh, it's it's we don't really get to know her in the same way that we get to know Brad Pitt and Edward Norton. Um, it, even though Brad Pitt isn't even a real character. Uh, he's, he's a figment of Edward Norton's imagination. We don't know Marla that well. And when you watch it a second time, you realize everything you thought about her, like that she'd sleep with anything and that sort of stuff. Those things may or may not be correct. And she's the only woman in the film. Right. And, uh, Except for maybe clearly her background. Right, right, yes. With one line. Um, David Fincher really focuses on men. Like, all of his movies are sort of manly men movies. Right. Uh, and this one is really that. Yes. And it, it borders, but it almost borders on sexism. Part of it is how shallow she's written. And, and they, have, they kind of almost had to do that because all of her lines had to be interpreted two different ways. Right. Like, you, you couldn't make a definite take on her. There's bits here and there that seem sexist. Like, they call... Bob. Robert Parks. Uh, they call... They refer to, to Bob's... Uh, uh, Mammaries as I don't know what it is. <laughs> pectoral right. his inflamed facts I don't know what you call it whatever whatever's going on there with the with so the, you're asking that they use a PC term that you do not know what it would be right <laughs> because the film reasonable request <laughs> well bitch tits okay is a little far like just saying that Bob has boobs like that I think would be uh, that doesn't seem like you hate women versus. Uh, for some reason, the word tits always seems a little misogynistic to me, and then calling them bitch tits is like, that's a little harsh. And uh, there's a scene where Edward Norton knocks on the door, Brad Pitt comes uh, comes to the door, and Marla is, like, in the background falling off the bed or something, and Brad Pitt offers Edward Norton to finish her off, which is like, like she's not even a person, that's weird. And then she says, who are you talking to? And Brad Pitt says, shut up, like in a very harsh tone of voice. And I'm like... None of this is, you're not... Treating women very well. Yeah, exactly. And the idea that, like... And granted, you know, the the film is for men who are feeling uh, like they're not doing manly things anymore. Right, the testosterone. But that doesn't mean you have to Search. hate women. It, it, and it, it's not... It never, it's not it, I'm not saying it's, it's Girl with the Dragon Tattoo in Sweden and they're just raping everybody. But, like, it's still... The, the tone is still a little bit... Uh, vaguely misogynistic in the same way that, like, any 16-year-old boy who is afraid to talk to girls is, kind of. Right. And instead watches internet porn. Right. <laughs> dominate, you know, with serve whatever he needs he has or something like that. But uh, it, did you bring up Girl with a Dragon Tattoo on purpose since that's also David Fincher? Uh, it was... Uh, it, well, uh, David Fincher gravitated towards that <laughs> subject matter. Right. Are we, are we formulating a thesis that David Fincher hates women? I don't think that he hates women. I think he's afraid of them. <laughs> okay. Or, no, I think it's really just he's focused on men, and sometimes it comes across as... Sometimes it's just we're just focusing on men, like like social network. But sometimes it's... He ends up stepping on women's toes in a way that may not may or may not be intentional. Um, and I think Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, by having, by wanting to make a movie about that, uh, about Elizabeth Salander, I think it was almost an apology for some of his previous movies. Look, I can do a female central right. character, too. And yet she's, like, the most manly female Well, character. and and have her raped multiple times. He didn't write that. <laughs> right, but he's still said, oh, that's character. a movie for me. <laughs> See, I can do women. Do them. Uh, I, mean, I mean, he even took Alien, the, the like... The only ser- only action series that has a female lead, and he's like, you know what we should do with Alien 3? Set it in a men's prison. There you go. <laughs> and shave off all of her hair so she looks like a man. This is You're starting to paint a much more nefarious, homoerotic picture of David Fincher. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not talking about Zack Snyder. <laughs> it's not It's not 300. I'm saying it's it's it, it's his own special brand of... Uh, of men being men. They yeah. reference Hemingway in terms of who Tyler Durden would fight historically, and that is kind of a Hemingway-esque kind of focus on men not overtly hating women, but being just a 
manly man means dominating. Dominating and kind of dominating the world, dominating wild animals, which does tread on the toes of definitely feminism. I will say that much, <laughs> uh, and just women in general. It's not Adrian Lin level of woman hating. Who he's the director of. He did Nine and a Half Winks with Kim Basinger. He did uh, Fatal Attraction. Fatal Attraction, right? Because uh, women are crazy. Women just go crazy sometimes. That you got to put them down. Uh, he's known kind of. He did the remake of Lolita with Jeremy Irons. Um, yeah, David Fincher is not uh, Adrian Lin. That, that's the summary. I'm going towards. <laughs> Because of all of that, I'm not surprised that like this movie isn't really uh, doesn't really appeal to women. Um, but uh, it really hit, I think, us at a time when we, when we were open to yeah, fuck the man. And you know, Brad Pitt has a whole thing about I reject society and the need for material possessions and stuff. And all of that sort of struck us when you were young and impressionable. But now I'm actually the age of the characters, and I realized. I mean, I'm sort of bored at work sometimes, but I don't really hate my life the way that Edward Norton does. This also came out at a different time. We didn't have iPhones. Uh, like, <laughs> saying reject material possessions now, I mean, like, but they're a lot cooler. Like, having IKEA furniture and DKNY shoes is why, yeah, screw that crap. I don't need that. But if you say, like, reject uh, Xbox 360, your iPhone, like, I think you'd get a little more resistance now. <laughs> Whatever, caveman. I'm enlightened now. I like now. your definition of resistance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying is that you, I don't think people are, have as much anger in their blood right now in spite of the economic crisis and all these things. Like, people do feel frustrated right now, but I don't know that it's for being emasculated. You're saying that electronics are the opiates of the masses. Right. Like uh, Caesar said, uh, iPods and circuses, right? That's exactly what he said. Keep the peace. People... Down. 2,000 years ago. I'm an idiot. <laughs> um, well, granted, it is a different time period, but I still feel like if I were an 18-year-old or 16-year-old discovers this, they're still going to like feel like punching something. And a lot of the stuff feels profound when you're watching it at that age, well, but now does not. When you say now, you mean when you're 16 or to right. 19. Yeah, that sounds profound. Like, Edward Norton has a line that said, he says, you know that saying about how you hurt the ones that you love? Well, it works both ways. And that's kind of a, it, it sounds interesting because he sort of reverses the, the, the phrase and he, he turns it on its head, but it's actually it's kind of a bland, empty statement. I mean, you can parse it and make some sense out of it. The ones that you love also hurt you. Actually, for, in terms of parsing it, I did it in reverse by saying you love the one that hurts you. It's you hurt the ones you love and... You come to love the ones that hurt you because Tyler Durden is bad for him. And so he's got almost Stockholm Syndrome or something, you know, where you uh, identify with your captors and people. And even if someone's hurting you, you uh, form an attachment with them. Okay. Well, in any case, it's sort of a vague statement that, that yes. doesn't mean much. And they may not even know which way it means. The, the writers, uh, there was actually several. Even though only Jim Olds was credited as the writer... Uh, adapting Chuck Palahniuk's book. There was actually many people worked on this. Including, uh, we mentioned earlier Seven. Andrew Kevin Walker wrote Seven. He did a lot of rewriting on Fight Club to the point where he couldn't get credit, so David Fincher named the three cops that arrest Edward Norton later on. I'm going to Yes, those guys. They He names those three cops Andrew, Kevin, and Walker in the <laughs> credits. So when you're watching credits, it says Andrew Kevin Walker. Like, nice. In a His row. name is in the credits. Right. Take that, WGA, <laughs> you and your rules. Um, but in any case, w the point I was trying to make was that these, I, I doubt that this conglomeration of writers even knew specifically what it meant. I think they were just like, that sounds clever. We're going to leave that in. That and how is that working out for you? See what I did there? Being clever? Huh? That's a line from the... Oh, right. Being clever. Shut up. <laughs> wow. So, one of the reasons that I was actually surprised on how much I still liked this movie on subsequent watchings or seeing it recently was because of how overblown the level of depth it's supposed to have has become or was when we were in college or the number of people that had the poster and the book by Chuck Palutnik and I didn't it's read it. On my shelf right yeah, there. <laughs> I think I have it. My roommate in college left it uh, when he moved out. So I have been lugging it around for 10 years <laughs> and I refused to read it because I saw the movie Thank You 
And I've seen interviews with him, and he just doesn't strike me as overly profound. Like, this seems like a lucky happenstance. He seems like an illiterate Frank Miller. And Frank Miller draws comic books. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, like, he, he seems like a poor man. He seems like Frank Miller who can't draw. And, and Frank Miller is kind of crazy. The types of people who have recommended his other books to me, <laughs> and I go, you're a pseudo-intellectual douchey guy like that I do not like and will not take your opinion. So now view those books as I'm not going to read them. Uh, <laughs> I think it's perfectly valid. The overblown kind of meaning behind the story, the book, and what this should have created in us is why I really distanced myself from it for a while. I saw it, was amazed by it as a movie, but then people say, Again, oh, it's Fincher's a... technical virtuosity. Right. Yeah. He, it's, it's amazing as a film, but what people tried to make it mean out in society and culture for the book, for starting their own fight clubs... I just went, calm down, douchebags. Like, <laughs> it's not uh, a religion. Shut up. Like, that's a plot point in the movie that they, you know, follow this. And the, Brad Pitt says, oh, I look around this room, I see the greatest potential, the smartest people of our generation. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> They're like unemployed mechanics. I'm not judging anyone for being a mechanic, but I'm not going to call them the greatest, smartest man of our generation. Because by definition, they are not. For If they took an IQ test versus... Someone else that is charted for having the highest... Okay, energy. Ayn Rand, settle down. Yeah. Like, everybody rises to their level exactly. that they deserve. <laughs> These people are losers, <laughs> and they deserve to die. As much as I grew to dislike the uh, movement outside of the film, when I went back and rewatched it, I thought that would either color me or I would find it overblown and douchey, and it's not. It's not in there. It's what, that's what people made it. So, yeah, I, I sort of came around and... and I went like I took the other way around to come back to this being a, a pretty good movie. When I first saw it, I did think it was a revolution and it was a religion or whatever. And then as I got older, I was like, no, this is actually kind of dumb. Like I saw myself as one of those douchey guys, or at least my younger self. And I was like, this is this is dumb. And then I blamed the movie for, for that. Look well, that way for making me look that way, or for like encouraging that behavior in myself and my peers. This movie really is like Catcher in the Rye for our generation, where uh, when I read it in college, I was 19 or so, and so Holden Caulfield, you know, going through transitional period or whatever, being a kid to a teenager, was interesting, and there was a little bit profound in it, but talking with other people about it that I knew, like some masters or graduate students at college, they're like, oh yeah, I just actually read that, and it's something you have to read at the right time. Like, if you're a teenager and you read that, you go, yeah! I'm misunderstood, and I'm like this kid. But if you're, say, in your 30s and you read that, you're like, what a whiny kid. Like, that's all it comes across as, and yet it's historically in the 60s and stuff was this big coming-of-age masterpiece that fully embodied a character at that age. The, the difference between Fight Club and Catcher on the Ride, though, I read Catcher on the Ride when I was that age. I was a teenager or whatever, and I hated it. Because I was like, this kid's a loser. I'm a loser... And I don't need to read about that. I'd like that. to read, you know, Superman bunching people or whatever. Which Looking I, like I, Brad Pitt. Yeah. Like, Fight Club has an element of fantasy to it. Sexiness. Yes. And that is, uh, and maybe that's just the difference in taste, but, like, at that age, when I was not sort of happy with, you know, every, you know broody teenager, all that sort of, you know, nonsense that everybody was, uh, and nobody acknowledges it at the time, I preferred a fantasy of everything being cool and everybody liking me. You know, the, the idea of forming a split personality and then creating a cult centered around that other personality and then realizing, wait a second, I'm the one who did everything. Like, that seemed cool to me. Whereas Catching the Rye, I was like, he's a loser. I'm also a loser. Everybody's a loser. <laughs> I'm sad now. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna go listen to The Cure. <laughs> um, yeah, it, I was just more equating it to a being of a time and place and for a specific age group. Right, it, that definitely is, tone is the case. Pitch perfect. The other thing that when I saw this, I actually uh, used to movie hop. And so... Uh, I have never once done that in my life. I, that People is, are shocked that I've never done that. And I'm like, I uh, want this business to stay in business so I can have a job in the future. I, like most teenagers, was not thinking that far ahead and was like, I don't have any money and I want to see more movies because I would like to work in this business in the future. So <laughs> justifications was still there. but uh, And I actually went uh, from American Beauty into this movie back to back. 
Those go together. Those were, and I was actually amazed at how much they lined up and went together. They were both anti uh, anti uh, consumerism, right? And the quitting your job blackmail scene. He, Kevin oh. Spacey, gets called in to say your outputs this, or we're doing an audit because we're cutting people, and he says you one of our vice presidents went to Thailand to stay with a hooker or something, and she tracked up fifty thousand dollars. You're telling me. And he threatens to sue, you know, or he says, I'm going to blackmail you, keep paying me, or else I will expose this. And then he says, and why would I do that? And he says, I'll throw sexual harassment in there, can you prove that you didn't just offer to blow me to keep my job? And so it's the level of, it's not fighting him. Weird, I remember that line at the yeah, time, I was said, like, why would the boss offer to blow him? It That's... was eh, weird, because he likes... Penises is the picture Kevin Space is trying to paint. Well, I understand, but I mean... It's, it's a weird yeah. thing, but the guy probably just didn't want to bring up the... Maybe that's how. It, it went the other way. He's like, no way. That's too obvious. <laughs> but you reverse it, and now people might think, that's so weird, I just believe uh, But the quitting scene, I think he even is wheeling, he's walking out in a similar shot. Wheeling, like, where did he get the grocery cart full of Yeah, uh, that one, and then there's small touches, but seeing these back-to-back, -back, I was like, this is the same movie. Even without those motifs or shots looking similar, thematically, they were both tapping into this frustration and emasculation of the modern suburban man or lack of fulfillment for both of them. So I think that was in the air and in the culture. It was a feeling like that at the time. American Beauty, they sort of presented as his midlife crisis is a correct solution, whereas Fight Club does turn back around and say, hey, punching each other. Going too far. And and some people don't accept that. Like I read recently on the, uh, the Film Critic Hulk's blog, he had a whole long thing about how just because Edward Norton rejects uh, Tyler Durden at the end, that doesn't actually mean that the movie discourages uh, this behavior. Right. There is a sudden shift when Bob is killed, and we slowly realize that Tyler and the narrator are the same person. Almost more important is the fact that Tyler is the bad guy. Like, he's treated as a villain, and he's threatening our main character. It's almost more of a twist that Tyler is the bad guy, than, than the fact that Tyler and, and the narrator are the same character. They really do try to take this you know, ship that's been heading in one direction towards the uh, let's burn the world uh, you know, destination, and they really do make an effort for the last half hour to turn around and say, Tyler is a villain. Look at you know, the way that they light him, the angles that they use, his performance, he's clearly threatening. The character, you know, the, we're, we're supposed to identify with Edward Norton. Everything that we we thought he was trying to help us, he's actually trying to hurt us. Um, I and I, I think that what that makes the movie a little more profound than American Beauty, because American Beauty's the midlife crisis solution is actually not a good solution. Like if, in real life, you'd be like, yeah, he's kind of a dick. Well, <laughs> for he, abandoning his family, he doesn't abandon them. He tries to talk to them, and he says, "I." have needs and wants that I've been denying for you, and that was wrong to do. So he goes overboard in quitting his job and buying a muscle car and saying, I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want, get high and everything. Don't forget, sleep with the teenage girl daughter's he, he friend. He stops that when he she says she's never done it before, and maybe she says she's 16, I forget. Uh, I think she just says that she's never done it. Right, so he reaches that line and then decides not to cross it. But, but he, he doesn't look back and say, hey, wait a second, maybe all of this is equally stupid as trying to sleep with a teenage girl. Right, no. He says, uh, you know, some of this was right. I gotta have a little me time. But he, he I don't think he comes he to a... He goes in and has a Coke because he, he wants one <laughs> and then gets shot in the back of the head. He doesn't come to a middle ground in the same way that Fight Club tries to. He doesn't it, go back and get his job. He doesn't try not, and find his wife. It's it, not spelled out for us in there that, right, he went too far. Well, he doesn't spell it out, but the filmmakers decide to kill him before he's allowed to do that. Right, because society will kill you if you try and get what you want. <laughs> you have to fit into their mold, or they will destroy you. Right, so, so again, Fight Club has a more positive message sure. than the American Beauty has. Um, I don't know why this became a fight between yeah. Fight Club and American Beauty. Well, you talked about uh, the base charges being in the building there, and, and I said maybe he was going to die for his cause. Like, uh, that's what American Beauty went with. He rose up and said, we shouldn't be like this, and decided to cut him down for it. That's a sad downer it ending. It is, and yet it, for he sacrificed himself to show us, bring us this message, like Jesus. Uh, <laughs> 
Which actually, again, back to Fight Club, uh, there is a lot of Jesus metaphor. He does say he resurrects every night. He says he dies and is resurrected each night. He cries into Bob's shirt, and there's a Shroud of Turin-looking imprint uh, on there. Um, Again, I just thought that was just a goof. Whatever. Uh, Interpreted that as more. Read it as that. They say uh, when he hits him in the ear and then he punches him back, like Tyler says, Jesus, and uh, the narrator says, Oh Christ. He is uh, wrestling with this idea of changing the world, and uh, he's two parts of one whole. Then again, in the end, he dies by shooting himself in the face. Just like Jesus. Just like he comes back to guide them, uh, his disciples, into the uh, the true meaning of what his teachings were all about. He, Actually, he uh, burns down his own house, rebuilds the temple in three days. I don't think that <laughs> is necessarily ironed out, but he does blow up his own house. <laughs> um, actually, uh, speaking of the scene where he's fighting himself, yeah. where, where Tyler and the narrator are fighting, there are... Upon the sixth or seventh viewing of this movie that I've had, there are a few holes, and that one I think is sort of the biggest one. The first time you see the film, he and Tyler are fighting, and then some guys come out and they're sort of looking at them funny, and it cuts away and you sort of assume they're like, hey, we're punching each other for fun, do you guys want to do it? And they're like, that's a little weird, in the same way that you know the narrator was, and then they get, in, they get sort of sucked in the same way the narrator gets sucked into it. But in reality, and they even show this uh, later on, He's, Edward Norton is just punching himself. How did he convince those guys to join it? Hey, I'm punching yeah. myself. Can I punch you? Yeah, I don't have anyone to punch. Like, how it, did that conversation go? It is weird then that if they were a fight, they'd walk over and say, like, hey, a fight. Whereas if it's a guy hitting himself, you're like, hey, crazy person, let's avoid that. Like, it just seems weirder. Uh, I agree that's one of the ones where they flash back, and I went, really? Similar, he... Uh, and, yeah, it's it's also, they chose that for one of the flashbacks. They're like, look at this! Wait, that one doesn't make any sense. Maybe we should point out one of the other ones where he drops the bottle, and you're like, oh, he's just hallucinating. <laughs> Although it's also one of the funniest, because he is bunching himself. Right, <laughs> so that's probably, they thought that overrode the any questions about what, how the conversation might have gone outside. Right. In the end, for some of the flaws we discussed, or... Reservations I had about going back and watching this after a while. I still find it to be a great movie. As I mentioned, I didn't like the cultural reaction and the raising it up on high as far as, oh, we have to emulate this, and it means a lot more than it did. But just watching the movie on its own, void of all that, I still think this is a great movie. Yeah, you, once you once you leave behind the, the cultural baggage, it, it works out to be a, a very good, I don't know, 12th best movie. 12th best movie. I keep going movie. back to that. But even during the period of time when I was sort of sick of it, you could never deny the technical skill, like the preciseness of everything. There's a quote from David Fincher, who I don't even know where it comes from. It's just listed on his IMDb page. But he says, people will tell you there's a thousand ways to shoot a scene, but I don't think that's true. I think there's two ways, maybe, and one of them is wrong. <laughs> Which you could see by the way he shoots that, like, that is... He has, he has that point. point. Yeah. He has, he's locked in and saying, this is the correct angle. And he's decisive and confident in that. Yeah. But he's also a, a very clear example of the director not being the determinant of the film. Because you look at this, you look at uh, Seven or The Social Network, great movies. You look at Curious Case of Benjamin Button, not so much. <laughs> like, you give him a script by Aaron Sorkin, and you have probably the best depiction of internet culture on film. You give him a script by the guy who wrote Forrest Gump, and you get basically Forrest Gump with Brad Pitt aging in reverse. You still need a really good script. And this film has that, and I think we saw it at the time when that script meant something else to us, mm-hmm. and then I sort of rejected that. But when I come back around and look at it as an adult... I think the script actually does come back to being more meaningful, actually even more meaningful than the book, which is kind of trite and uh, silly. For as much as people laud the book and the movement and everything surrounding it as, oh, it's actually a cultural piece or it's a message that we should take out of the film, people also said, oh, well, the movie is so sellout, like the book is anti-corporate and anti-all this, and then they get Brad Pitt to play this and they sell these posters and you know it gets marketed six ways from Sunday, so that's so sellout, and I reject that. So that's part of the douchiness that I, I don't <laughs> like about it. But it did even go on beyond that to be like, uh, 
pretty commercial, you know, monster and stuff. They made a video game of it <laughs> that I actually worked on. Arguably, this was a flawed concept because they made it, I think, seven years after the, uh, the movie came out. So not really striking while the iron was hot. <laughs> and you play the characters, but they had to really stretch for some of the supporting characters that you could fight as. You could be Bob. You could be Raymond K. Hessel. You could be Lou, the owner of the bar. <laughs> and then ultimately, if you beat all the levels, you could unlock Abraham Lincoln as a playable character. And Fred Durst was an unlockable, playable secret character at the end because he came up with an original song for the theme song of the video game. Because that's how pathetic it was. Are you telling me there is a video game that exists where Abraham Lincoln can punch Fred Durst in the face? Yes. And this is not the greatest video game of that, all time? That should be quintessentially best thing about America. <laughs> and yet the game was considered the bomb of the year by like Game Informer. And uh, it was on like Crack's top ten worst game interpretations of the <laughs> storyline. Uh, the other thing about how corporate it was is the game was sponsored by like Virgin Cola. So there's Virgin Cola in all of the... Scenes the maps. Thing that Virgin doesn't make. It's the Umbrella Corporation, I, isn't it? I think it might be. <laughs> well, that's a sad note to end on, but uh, maybe next episode we'll have a happier movie. <laughs> there you go. Tune in to find out. People yeah. have to tune dials on the internet. <laughs>